Welcome to Hacking the South. I'm Adrian Baker, and I'm recording this episode from Kyoto, Japan. I'm on the end of a longer trip away from home. I've been away from home for my wife and I have been in the States for six weeks, which has been really nice visiting friends and family in the States. And now I'm spending a week in Japan. I'm, I'm here for work, but I came several days early to spend time in one of my favorite countries. And so I'm having a lot of fun just exploring Kyoto and also the surrounding area for the next few days before I go to Tokyo for work. But also really looking forward to going back to Thailand. And I definitely have that feeling, I don't know, for the rest of you out there who find yourself enjoying the benefits of kind of a routine. I'm sure many of you do who have any kind of yoga or meditation or qigong practice. And I've been keeping up for the most part. But when you're not at home, when you're traveling, you know, even when you're in the best of situations or even when you're staying in one place for a longer period of time, it can be tricky to kind of keep your normal structures and routines in place. So I am looking forward to going back to Thailand soon. And one of those things on that note, I apologize if some of you have noticed a bit of a delay in getting some of the episodes out. I've been trying to do it regularly, and I have, but a couple of episodes have come out once every two weeks instead of every week, and it's just been kind of tricky juggling things as I've been traveling, arranging guests, and recording the episodes, and you know all that stuff. So thank you for your patience, and I want to introduce today's guest who I'm really excited about. She's someone who I heard... I'm trying to think it was over at this point, I believe it was over a year ago when I first heard her interviewed and I knew that I wanted to have catching Ananda on the show. And I knew I wanted to have her on the show because she said of all the yoga and meditation teachers she studied with, there are really two that she considers her primary teachers above all else. And those two people are Richard Freeman and Jack Kornfield. Given those are two people about whom I would, I've studied with and, you know, I have similarly great things to say and have been of great importance to me in shaping my practice that um, I knew she was someone I wanted to have on the show to talk about our, our mutual interests. And Kachi's also a really experienced teacher. So I wanted to learn from her wisdom. And also I really wanted to ask some questions about how she had combined a few different paths, or I should say practices that are part of my own path and that I often frequently explore and wonder about in this show. So really how to integrate yoga and Buddhism and also how to incorporate plant medicine and psychedelics and what are the role of those within a larger, whatever you want to call it, path of personal growth, spiritual growth. And so Katchi and I really talked about those things in depth. You know, we talked about her time studying with Richard and Jack, you know, in her bio. Um, but we also really talked about the ways in which these practices complement each other and the distinctions between them. You know, I think ultimately my view is the same as hers in that they are uh, inseparable, you know, and they're all really part of the same tree. But I wanted to work through some of these questions. I think it's good not to take that for granted because I think something that's really important, which I've mentioned a lot on this show before, especially for something like psychedelics, but it's true for anything, is the importance of intention. In Buddhism, that there's a big focus on right intention, your motivation for your actions being extremely important. And so I wanted to sort of discuss that a bit with, with Kachi and talk about 
the intentions for using these, which different practices, including which different you know psychedelics or plant medicines are appropriate for a particular purpose, and how do they really all work together. And on top of all of that, I just think Catchy's a wonderful person who has a fascinating story. And she really talks a lot about the connection between yoga and shamanism, which is something that a couple of other teachers have awakened me to. One of them is Danny Paradise, who I'm hoping to have on the show. We actually started the interview and just had to cut it short because the connection was weak, but hopefully I'm going to have him on. But Danny's someone who brought that to my attention and other teachers have as well. One thing I've really realized is that the type of qigong I've been practicing called five animals based on the movement of five different animals. It's an ancient form of medical qigong is definitely a form of shamanic practice. And it, I've just given a lot of thought to how indigenous peoples everywhere had really common themes in the way they thought about the world. I think I see some similar themes with what I know, what little I know from Native American religion, which I've learned about this summer, a bit from Mary Porter, who was on the podcast. And I see definite parallels there with Taoism and the Chinese way of thinking that also underpins Qigong. So that's a, an interesting topic I explore as well with Kachi and hopefully a theme that I'll continue to develop with, with other guests as well. But I hope that you enjoy my interview with Kachi. I'm sure that you will. She's a, a great person who's an experienced teacher with a lot to share. So let me briefly read her bio before I segue to our conversation. Kachi Ananda is an international yoga and Dharma teacher who has been teaching as a full-time yoga teacher since 1990. She is certified in Integral, Jiva Mukti, Anusara, and Ashtanga Yoga, the latter by Richard Friedman. A committed student of Vipassana meditation, she has practiced with Jack Kornfield, her Buddhist mentor since 2000. The co-founder and director of Yoga Sangha, a beloved yoga center in San Francisco dedicated to yoga and Dharma, Kachi offers trainings in Europe and the USA. She's dedicated to raising awareness about human and animal rights, the environment, and social justice. Her leadership in yoga and social change prompted Yoga Journal to name her one of top five top yoga teachers making change in the world, and she volunteered for many years at San Quentin teaching yoga and dharma to long-term inmates. So this connection between yoga and dharma is really... Uh, the core theme at the heart of Kachi's teaching. And for any regular listener of the show, they'll know that connection between yoga and Buddhism is really at the heart of the interest of this show as well. So hope you enjoy my conversation with Kachi. I'm sure that you will if you enjoy the normal conversations that we have on this podcast. And finally, I would just love to say that I'd love to hear from you, what you're enjoying about the show, any guests that you'd like to have, thoughts, questions, concerns, things you might want to change, you can contact me at hackingtheself at gmail.com, Hacking the Self Facebook page, at Hacking the Self on Twitter. Finally, would love your support to help try to get the word out about the show. If you're willing to share the conversation with people on social media, that would be a huge help, telling friends and family about it. You know, if you've been enjoying the podcast for more than a few episodes, maybe considering giving to the podcast on patreon.com slash hacking the self simply giving at the two dollar or level or more a month that's you know 50 cents an episode on average is 
a wonderful way to support the show that really makes a huge difference. At this point, I'm just trying to get even to cover the production costs of the show because I have a professional production team produce the show in order to really break even, even on the production costs, which I'm still about $200 short of. So if you'd consider giving some money on Patreon, I'd be very grateful. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kachiananda. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Kachi, let me just start off by thanking you so much for making the time to speak with me. I know that you're very busy and just want to say that I'm very grateful for you making the time and I'm really looking forward to this conversation given our mutual interest in the teachers that we've shared. Yes, Adrian. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. I actually enjoy audio. My students know that I don't exactly have a problem with, um, you know, speaking and rambling sometimes. And just like my teacher, you know, Richard can really do that too. Take you on a tangent occasionally, which is very interesting. So I'm happy that it actually is just audio and not video. We, we always get a little anxious when I'm being videotaped. So thanks for having me. I agree. I like the lower stakes of audio. <laughs> <We'll relax>. <laughs> Indeed. Well, <laughs> We have much to discuss and, you know, you just mentioned Richard. I definitely want to talk about Richard and Richard Freeman and Jack Cornfield as well. But before we sort of get into your background, I would love to start out, even though I've just read, you know, a bit about your bio in the intro, I thought we might begin by you describing the kind of yoga that you practice and teach. Yes, I'm happy to. Well, you know, I've been studying yoga now for over 30 years, and I pretty much started it right when it came hot off the press, so to speak, from India. And, you know, with the first ambassadors like Swami Sachinananda and Dharma Mitra, and then in the early 90s, Jiva Mukti. So that's kind of, I fell in. Like, I actually was a dancer before and always interested in not just movement, but for me, it was more like, well, you know, I remember going to church as a child in Switzerland and thinking like, well, there's something missing here. <laughs> and so when I discovered yoga in the, actually in Switzerland, in, the, in my teens still, I was like, oh, wow, there is something here that is like you're praying with your body instead of just with your voice or with your whatever, you actually include the body in your prayers. And I thought that was the missing link of going to church. You know, I mean, the, the closest that I feel that connection is in an African-American church, because then there's, there's more integrated praying happening. Sometimes people dance like in Glide Church in San Francisco. So that really interested me when I started. And so, but since then, my yoga has really evolved quite a bit, probably because of the influences of Jack Cornfield and Richard Freeman, which were my main teachers, still are. And, uh, well, basically, in a nutshell, what I can say about my yoga is that uh, I call it really the yoga for the innocent little creature body. That's kind of my thing. It's like you do not need to torture the innocent little creature body. 
and actually is, uh, and I, I'm still fighting, or not fighting, but I'm in opposition to this kind of patriarchal way of dominating over nature. And people still think or assume that in order to practice yoga, you have to dominate the body, right? And it's kind of this, you know, if you think about a dog, you can train a dog or any animal for that matter in various ways. The old way of doing it is kind of with a reward and punishment system. So if the dog does something good, then you reward it with a treat. And if it does something bad, you you hit it or you, you know, there's some kind of violence involved, you know, where the dog cowers and Yes, it works. Or like in, you know, maybe even a better example is with horses, you know, you break them down. That's even the term that was used to like taming a horse, except for uh, my husband's people who is American Indian, part American Indian, and they would actually take the time to tame the horse in a very different way, not with by breaking its spirit or by breaking it with uh, hardware and spores, but it takes longer, but by simply having the patience to interact with the animal until it starts trusting you, and then gradually introducing the idea of putting something on its back and and getting to a place where there's a harmony, you know, and we see it when we see somebody that is in tune with their animal, whether it's like the service people that sometimes bond with their dogs, that they will rescue their dogs before they rescue themselves because they're there's such a unity between them. There's there's more than just training. There is love. And so I kind of view yoga as the same path. Like you can either, you know, create this relationship with your body where you're dominating, like you push it and you, you know, you basically discipline it and you think that's the only way. And it kind of works. You know, you get a trained dog or a trained horse, but I think something gets lost in the process And then there's also this other way where you just like actually sit your body on the mat and you treat it like it was an innocent little creature and you basically communicate with it. It's like, what do you need today? How can we approach this? Like, so that the yoga looks very different. I'm not saying that it's always soft or that you're always like just laying on your mat. No, of course, that also involves sometimes maybe pushing the envelope a little bit or creating a more advanced practice where you sweat or you try something new, but maybe you won't do this on the day where you're already feeling vulnerable or you're a little under the weather or whatever life, you know, comes up with these things where you're just a little bit raw. And then maybe then you have a different approach to how to treat the innocent little creature body. So in a nutshell, that is the yoga that I teach. How to communicate with your innocent little creature body so that you actually make it into your ally rather than into your enemy. So that your body becomes your ally in the quest, you know, to, according to the Bhagavad Gita, to live your dharma, which is, according to the Bhagavad Gita, the only thing that's going to make you happy is to live your dharma so that you don't fight your body. You don't like make your body an enemy where you're constantly, where it sabotages you so that there's a unit between who you want to be in the world and the mission that you have, your purpose, and that your body is just an ally. It's, it's actually helping you to achieve that. 
Wonderful. That's it in a nutshell. And I I want to unpack that further. And I want to talk sort of broaden our view about what yoga is and what really motivates us to practice. But I feel like in order to get there, you know, it would really make sense to sketch a bit more about your background, because I have a feeling like most people, the way that you've practiced over time has probably evolved. Certainly, it sounds like very different than, for example, like probably what you were doing at Jiva Mukti, right, in the 1990s. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm curious to hear a little bit about that sort of, what did your yoga practice sort of look like early on? And how did you find your way to Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor? Yes, thank you. So the way that I started with Jiva Mukti, it was truly perfect because I was a dancer, as I said. And I was looking for more of this connection, not just to express art in my practice, but to pray. That's what I was really looking for. And Jiva Mukti was this incredibly creative, like very like unusual place in the early nineties where there were it, it was it truly exceptional. I mean, it, it was one, like my nineties were spent there. Like I practically lived at Jiva Mukti and it was incredibly free. And there was, it was, it was called at the time a spiritual resource center and Sharon and David, the founders, they were actually, they really love animals, which really appealed to me. So it was the, the groundwork was laid there in some ways. Like it was Yes, we have to learn to live together in harmony with uh, all of creation, and that was very important. That their their particular take on that is, of course, you know, the vegan, the veganism, and so forth, which they may or may not do always that skillfully. But nevertheless, you know, maybe we need sometimes to be exposed and pushed a little bit in order to make a change. So I see today, you know, activism is more important than ever. Yes, does it need to be skillful? For sure. But sometimes we, you know, people need to be woken up. So, yeah, their methods are their methods. I'm grateful they exist because I can't do it quite like that. But I do appreciate the work they're doing in order for people to wake up to the plight, you know, of what animals go through in this country and over the world to you know, serve us. And like my, like I said, my uh, husband is part American Indian and his people eat animals, but they do it in a very different way. Like they hunt them and they ask for permission and they kill it with, you know, absolute reverence and they use every part, like everything of the animal is used. There's nothing thrown away. There's no disrespect so there's different ways of doing this. So I'm not saying, you know, have become a vegan, but I would love to have that awareness. And I know the Jiva Mukti people work on that. There was, however, for me, you know, the way that we were taught to practice yoga did not really feel in alignment with that message of animals. Because it's like, I kind of view the body actually as part of, it's an animal. Our bodies are creatures, just like every creature's out there. They are creatures. They have needs. They have, you know, they, they operate under the same law as any other creature out there. So 
I sometimes felt like I remember like I would push myself so hard. And in fact, I, I got quite injured during my time there. Like there was just like an overriding of natural boundaries in the body. The, the focus was always on stretching more, bigger, deeper. And today I'm like, I don't think it's necessary to like push people to and over their limits, especially people like me who are already flexible by nature, where am I going to go? So the the price that I paid for that kind of ambition, let's say, and my own ambition as well, because I was also operating under the impression that more is better. So if I stretch, you know, if I have my leg behind my head, that's not enough. My leg should go behind my shoulders or behind, like it was always more. And today I really question that attitude, like why? Why should my leg go further down my back? What's the exact purpose except that my hip, and I do have permanent hip damage from that you know, attitude of always pushing more. So today I'm more like, okay, so one of my favorite saying is your joints are on the endangered species list <laughs> if you practice yoga. <laughs> so you really want to make sure that you start learning how to protect your joints. Where two things come together, there's always vulnerability. That's also yoga, right? Is where two things come together. And there is a special awareness that has to develop. It's not just pushing harder or going further, but actually I've learned to do the opposite back off the range of movement and then integrate more muscular energy in various ways, especially, you know, the opposing muscle groups so that the joints are actually protected so that what you're stretching is the muscle, not any of the joints or because once you damage the ligaments, the joints, the cartilage, that's pretty much damaged. I mean, ligaments will recover to a certain degree, but the joints themselves, once the cartilage is worn down or the, the bone itself, the capsule, that's it. You know, I have a little bit of worn down on the left side of my acetabulum. The front side is having some arthritis because, you know, my left side was my good side, meaning I was more flexible on my left side. So naturally, I pushed even harder on that side, which is really stupid. Today, I'm doing the opposite. I will hold back on the left and work more on the right. So that kind of uh, thing changed. And when I met uh, Richard Freeman, I think it was in like 1994 or 95, just the way that he was talking was just fascinating to me. Also because his understanding, I mean, just to illustrate, I remember as part of the uh, Jiva Mukti training, even though at, at first there was no training, but you know, I was one of the earliest teacher there. So the trainings came later and uh, we did some back trainings, the teachers who already taught at Jiva Mukti. And uh, I remember sit, sitting on 9th Street in my apartment on 9th Street overlooking Tompkins Square Park. It was on the third floor in an Irish apartment. That's where I landed. That's where I lived for 10 years, you know, with a strong accent, basically imported from Switzerland. And I sat there <laughs> reading, you know, um, on the fire escape, which was a big thing in summer New York. I was reading the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And I forget which verse toward the end, there was like, I remember sitting there with my latte, you know, drinking my latte, reading the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And it said, 
if you're really serious about yoga, you must avoid hurricanes, earthquakes, and women. <laughs> I remember, like, I was, I coughed, like, I spit out part of my, like, latte, you know, and I was mad. I had a moment of, like, wanting to throw the book out right there and be done with it. So I was mad. I was like, this sucks you know like how can I avoid women if I'm serious about yoga I consider myself a very serious yoga student so Richard was able for me to unpack a lot of those teachings in a way that would you know leave off or unveil the core of a teaching that just made sense to me and explain the things in a in a way these strange things culturally, you know, relevant to the time they were created that I could let go. So I didn't have to basically throw the baby out with the bathwater. I was able, he was able to unpack it. So I, I recognized that very quickly that he actually saw into the heart of things because I wasn't willing to accept bullshit. I've always had a very strong bullshit detector ever since I'm very young. I'm just, I have a very strong internal compass, not saying that it it's not wrong sometimes but nevertheless it is there and i just i don't know i and you know the older i get the less tolerant i am towards bullshit if some, somebody tries to tell me some bullshit i i just know it it's just like okay okay that's where this is and it's okay it's fine it's just like i'm not going to accept it and richard was like okay so there is somebody who can explain to me these teachings these more obscure teachings and the Hatha Yoga Pradipika certainly is that. Like, it's really actually quite wonderful if you understand it. So, and I still don't understand a lot of it, but the things that he was able to explain to me, you know, have evolved since then and unfolded, and they actually are deeply resonating within my core. So that's how I ended up moving to Boulder in 98. I left Jiva Mukti just when we were moving from Lafayette to Broadway, I left. I think so we had a big party. And and something, uh, Kachi? Please, yeah. so, please, anytime. So how did, over the years that you studied with Richard, how did your understanding of what yoga is, you know, and how you practiced it, how did that evolve over that period of time? Well, it more and more went away from the outer form toward the inner form and in a kind of a practical way, meaning how can I apply this to my life so it can make a difference? How is it applicable? Because I, I really am not interested in two esoteric things that just like you were supposed to believe and it really has no resonance with the rest of your life. So I'm, I've always been on the search for how does this apply to my life? How, how can I use this? to make myself a better person, to uh, be more patient, to fall less into my own traps of, you know, anger and delusion and uh, fear and whatnot. So Richard was the first one who was able to do that. So I moved to Boulder to study with him and lived there and taught at his studio for a while. And then Richard actually introduced me to Jack via one of his students and we did a retreat where Wendy, who was a student of Jack's, taught Vipassana. And that's how I got introduced to Jack's book. It was probably in 1998. 
And I, that was it. I read that book and I was like, oh my God, this is my next teacher. So I moved to San Francisco in order to study with Jack. So that's obviously a big shift, you know? I mean, you're going from studying Ashtanga, a very physical practice, to Buddhism. And I can certainly see how that evolution happened in a very logical way. I mean, you just explained it for folks who, who ha- don't know Richard personally, but knowing him, I mean, he really emphasizes the internal forms, as you said, and also just yoga as so much more than asana. You know, yoga is a path of waking up rather than just a form of exercise. So in my mind, that's a natural progression. Nonetheless, you're obviously going from a very physical practice to all of a sudden, you know, silent retreats. And I'm just curious, why at this particular time did you feel a need to shift from maybe either the physical or your your asana practice to your meditation practice? Or, you know, why did sort of studying with Jack seem so relevant at that particular time in your life? (laughs) Yeah, it's really very simple. You know, I hated meditation. It's like, truthfully, if I'm really honest, it's just in the last few years that my I've been doing it. It's not like I haven't. I sit every day and every morning, but, you know, kicking and screaming internally a lot. And it's just been in the last few years that I actually really am starting to enjoy my sitting. I'm like, you know, and it's like the half an hour goes by and I sat, you know, it used to be challenging to sit 10 minutes. I, I would use, I used to just do it like this. I would do my whole like, you know, physical kind of pranayama and this and that for like half an hour and then do my metta practice for 10 minutes. And then at the end, I would hang on 10 minutes of sitting. And it was just kind of because I had to. (laughs) So the reason I was uh, doing, because I knew it was important. I just, I hated it. And Jack basically, you know, I just, Jack, he's my teacher. I mean, he's my maha, so to speak, maha teacher. I knew it the moment I read his book and the moment I met him, I was like, this is my teacher. And there was just, I just decided, you know, it's, it's more like falling in love. You know, like, how do you decide? Well, you don't decide it. You just know this is your, the person that you need to work with. You know, it's like with your, if you have a partner, it's the same thing. You don't logically decide, oh, this guy is a doctor and I'm going to fall in love with him. I'm not, at least not me. It's like, oh, this, this person, you know, you just feel the karma and the potential and the the work that could be the, the possibilities that could be done. It was like that with Jack. It was an instant recognition of like, this is my teacher and I need to work with this person. And it's, it's held up, you know, and I first I just trusted what he told me and I tried to do it as best. And I say that sometimes to my students, you know, it's like you develop, I now have an inner Jack, so I don't actually see Jack that much anymore. We talk occasionally or I do, you know, this and listen to a talk or whatever, but it's more like, what would Jack do in this situation? And I have like my own inner Jack now. It's like my own inner guy that has kind of the face and the, the voice of Jack. But I just knew when I met him that I needed to develop exactly what he taught and that this would produce results. And it does. You know, it's like if you practice something and it doesn't produce some taste of freedom, you're basically barking up the wrong tree, which is... Right, absolutely. 
So this is so interesting. I think it might fascinate a lot of people who maybe have an interest in going on a silent retreat, but they're so intimidated by it. So meditation was something that you not only really resisted, you know, prior to studying with with Jack Cornfield, which is for those who don't know, you know, he's in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. And it sounds like through all these years of studying with Jack, even that you really, you know, meditation wasn't something you enjoyed. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, like, what were you uh, making yourself slog through? Like, I'm curious as to the length of your silent retreats, kind of, were you doing one week, one month, how many times a year? What did your, and for how many years, what did your practice look like? during this period of time? Yes, well, it's, it was just because of Jack, because I just trusted him that I did it, because I really hated it. I really did. And so I started with many of the 10 days that he did. Like whenever he did a 10 days in the first few years, I would just do it. And it was 10 days. I felt, figured I could do that. I also learned to be more compassionate with my form. So I would alternate between cross-legged and a little meditation bench, as well as alternating with a chair and be okay with that. So I wouldn't stress my innocent little creature body too much by keeping it in the same position for too long when I started really hurting. So that helped a lot, just that freedom of shifting position in the longer retreats and of course the alternating walking periods with sitting and spirit rock is pretty good at that they don't actually have usually much longer periods than 40 minutes it's usually like the longest sit is about 40 or 50 minutes and then there will be walking because so they don't want to make it unbearable for the innocent little creature body so that helped and then I Jack suggested, he said, well, you're ready for a longer retreat. So I did a, a, a month-long retreat, and then I did another. So I basically just followed my teacher, even though it was hard and it was against uh, my natural flow. I'm a mover, you know, I'm a dancer, and I, I love the physical aspect of practice. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Let's talk about that, because I have really thought through this, you know, as I've gone through periods where, you know, I studied a lot of yoga very intensively. And now I'm in a point where I'm feeling like I did a lot of yoga and teacher trainings and retreats, and I'm starting to do more silent retreat with Buddhist teachers. And I've just kind of considered the value of the forms. I think there's something indispensable about just really making yourself sit with that stillness, you know, and just noticing the desire to move and be restless and you know, when you go through it long enough to touch that place of stillness is very profound. And at the same time, I think there's something absolutely essential about moving, whether it's walking meditation or qigong or yoga. And so uh, I'm curious, you know, after doing a lot of these longer retreats where you could be sitting for a long time or walking, what's your practice look like today? And what is your view on the efficacy of the different forms, at least for you, in terms of, you know, a contemplative practice. Yes. So here is my take on that, which I actually, I'm glad you brought that up, Adrian, because I find the form also incredibly important. So say Ashtanga, right? The form that we learn 
is incredibly comforting or can be like to have a form that cradles you that you repeat every day there's a lot of value on having a form and i'm a big proponent of that like whatever form it is that you stick with it for a while and you know get to know it because it it starts to take away that craving of the mind to always have something new. So if you have a trusted form, then your mind has to just kind of relax. And it actually facilitates that you fall into the breath and the movement without having the need to, to create something new every time. So it's a good thing. However, the form can also become very oppressive. So some people do that, like where the form becomes more important than the actual person in it. So the form, it starts to enslave or even oppress you. And that's when I think things are gone wrong. Like as long as you fit the form, like Richard would have this story about this, uh, I forget, um, I always forget the Greek guy, but there was a, a, a Greek story and this guy had a bed and breakfast and he was obsessed with the form. So when uh, he had only one type of bed, so when the guest was too long, he would sneak in in the middle of the night and he would cut off part of their leg so that the person would fit the form. And other people were too short, so he would sneak in at night and 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 attach something and pull them out until he just needed to f people to fit the bed. And people do the same thing with yoga instead of like fitting the form to you, they try to fit the form. So they try at all cost to make the pose look like at yoga journal or like one of those flexible people and they injure themselves in the process. So the form is good. It's comforting. It's supposed to be helpful, but it's not supposed to enslave you or oppress you. So every person in my opinion has to have the courage to look at the form and say, does this form fit who I am? How do I need to create this form so that actually it supports my practice rather than I'm supporting the form? And it's the same in meditation. Everybody will have to find a form within even the form that will work for them. Like, when do you sit in a chair? How long are you sitting cross-legged? so that you don't injure yourself. And there's a difference between the discomfort of, oh, I want to move now or whatever, or I'm restless. And it's a valuable thing to learn to sit with your loneliness or with your restlessness or with your anger. But there's also a fine line between it, if you're forcing your innocent little creature body to a form that ultimately will hurt it. And you'll see like the spirit rock teachers, Jack and, and people, they rarely sit on the floor anymore because they all kind of damage their knees because they would force their innocent little creature body to sit for such long periods of time that they actually blew out their knees or blew out their hips. So anyways, that's kind of my thought about that. Okay, that's great. Thank you. What does it look like today when you say you integrate Buddhism with yoga? You know, what does that look like in your daily practice? What does that look like in the workshops or retreats that you offer? Yes, that's almost hard to say because it's so fluid. I think the the whole thing has just 
uh, integrated in a way that I can't even say. I think actually the two of them belong together anyways, and there uh, there's an artificial separation that happened. And, uh, you know, I try to honor, obviously, because I also do believe in lineage. I think it's important who you studied with. And I will always mention in any retreats or, you know, longer teachings that I give, I will mention my teachers because I feel very good about being part of this lineage. So I want to honor this. You know, that means I also know my teacher's teachers. Yes, there was Batabi Joyce on Richard Freeman's end, and then there was Krishnamacharya on Batabi Joyce. I know my lineage. I know on Jack's side is Achan Jaw and other people that were important to him. So I like being part of a lineage. And I also think the whole thing has to be digested anyways. Like you can always tell when like some maybe younger teacher or so, they just kind of repeat those, but don't actually understand them. There's not much movement that comes from that. Like if a teacher has actually digested a teaching, there's a whole other level of moving the person that you're speaking to. You literally can affect them for years to come. Like Like something will resonate with them. That's what happened with Richard. Like he would say, you know, one or two things here or there. And it would unfold for me for years to come. I would sit with this and wrestle with this and it would come back and it would kind of like, you know, move in its own way. And I think a good teacher does that, but it also means that you have to have that digested. And that means that it will come in your own words. It will, you will have different ways of speaking about the truth. It will have a slightly different angle. And so within the lineage, you have to have the courage to express the teachings in your own way. And I think for me, it's like the Buddhist practice and the yogic practice, in some ways, it is the same. You know, this is how I understand it. And, you know, and yes, it's different now. Like I, I know that, you know, a lot of the yoga is taught in that kind of you know, that, for example, the word hatha means forceful, and that some lineages take that to be forceful, you have to overcome the the physical, you have to actually push it hard, you know, in order to, but I think it's a, it's a, it's an interpretation, you know, like, well, look at who had this interpretation, and I've learned enough that there are, for the same thing, there are so many different interpretations in both Buddhist and yogic traditions that you just need to be smart and find the one teacher who actually has the interpretation of the teaching that actually resonates with you because it can be said in 20 different things. And, you know, maybe the other points have, for example, just to give you an example, like pranayama, right? We all have heard of pranayama. So you can interpret pranayama as prana and yama which basically in the very classical way of expressing this means the subduing of the breath or the controlling of the breath. But now actually come to light that often when two words in Sanskrit are fused together, there's a syllable that's being dropped. So actually prana yama could also be prana ayama, which actually would turn this into its opposite which is crazy, right? So it actually may not mean 
pranayama, the control of the breath or the control of the prana, but it may actually mean the freeing, the setting free of the prana of the life force. So I often explain it in both. I say, actually, you know, there is value in both views. Like pranayama, if you don't think of it as control, but maybe more like a guiding, like let's say you have a water system and you want to guide the life, like the water in your garden into particular kind of places. You kind of guide the water. Okay, I'm going to put a little barrier here so that the water goes left over there. So you're guiding the life force of the water in specific ways. So that's how I would explain pranayama. But pranayama also, you know, like, well, and we're also looking towards setting the prana free. So I just find, often I find value in maybe a variety of viewpoints. And even within those, you have to find your own resonance with the teachings that really resonates at your core, that you can say, well, that really hit me in a certain way. And I think if you learn how to do that, it doesn't really matter whether it's Buddhist or Taoist. Taoist or it's yoga or wherever it comes from, you'll be recognizing as something that resonates and that can help you on your path to become a more complete human being. And isn't it what it's about? It's not about being a Buddhist. Jack often says that it's not about being a Buddhist. Be a Buddha, like be an awakened person (laughs) rather than a Buddhist. Right, right. I saw one of your videos online, or I saw a few of them, I should say, that you were doing at your retreats, and I noticed that you were doing some kirtan, and there were sort of forms of bhakti yoga, and I've also studied, I've gone to a Ram Das retreat, and I've been to Krishna Das's you know, concerts, so I really enjoy bhakti, I enjoy doing some puja, I enjoy practicing with mantra, you know, and so at the same time, I've come to appreciate some of the ways in which you know, obviously they can complement each other, but at some point there can be notable differences. For example, you know, one thing that I've come to sort of understand is how the kind of meditation practice that we learn in the Vipassana tradition, where we use, you know, mindfulness or attention on an object really as an insight practice or an observation on impermanence is really different, you know, fundamentally than what we're trying to do in a mantra-based practice with something like, you know, that's taking you into sort of a deep samadhi absorption state. And so I'm curious how you incorporate these different things, like say, mantra, if that's something you do, I don't mean to assume that from the other forms of bhakti I saw, with other practices that you have, and how you identify any inconsistencies and sort of integrate them in a way that's coherent. Right, right. I think it, it basically speaks to different parts of who we are. And it's not exclusive. It is more like the turning of a, a crystal. So it's it's just like, you know, in a way, it's like the Brahma Viharas. Like when, you know, your normal state, say, let's say, um, if you want to live in the Brahma Viharas, the Brahma Viharas are the abodes of the gods. So that's basically when we get a trained mind then we remain in these very healthy, it's like we can also uh, translate it as a healthy habit of the mind. So that when we go out into the world, there is a friendly attitude instead of being lost in thought or judgment. When you notice yourself like 
sitting in the bus and you're judging other people, you're like, oh, okay, I just fell out of the Brahma Viharas. Like, let's, what's the, the meta state of being is just being friendly. Now, when we encounter suffering, that is not enough. You cannot meet suffering with friendliness. It's just not strong enough medicine. So you have to turn the crystal and the same kind of under the goodness underneath will shine out in a different way. Now it will become compassion. So I kind of view it in the same way. So when you're doing bhakti yoga, which I think is really valuable for those of us who are more devotional kind. And you have to know that about yourself. I am extremely devotional. I'm a monogamous kind of person. I choose one partner. I'm not interested in having two partners or three partners. I choose one partner. I choose one teacher. I, you know, very deeply, like if once I commit to a teacher or to a a partner or to a practice, I actually commit 150%. So that's just my nature. So I personally will benefit a lot from having that kind of devotional aspect included. It feeds my heart. So like singing and any kind of devotional practice is good for me, but it's not really different. So in the Buddhist tradition, you, you basically differentiate between like an open mind where you kind of like Jack often uses the bells at listening, like when you're listening or like you develop your mind to hear the furthest thing in your environment. So you constantly allow the mind to open up more so that you realize that everything is included with your mind. That is a very different type of meditation than when you do a mantra. Like when you do a mantra, but that actually is the same as doing a mantra in the uh, yogic, in the Hindu or yogic tradition is the same as doing concentration practices in the Buddhist. But they also have that. They use very small, like focus. Like this is basically just to develop ekagrata, so the one pointedness of the mind. So you use everything like you use the breath you get smaller and smaller trying to concentrate the mind to one point to really train the mind to maintain focus so whether that's a mantra or you do this with the breath or we do this with the body scan doesn't really matter it's just a different type of awareness that you're using to A, train the mind, and B, to open the mind into its original mind, which is actually in a way the same thing. It's just two different approaches. So for me, there's no conflict. It's actually all covered. There's just different words of describing it. I mean, there's, you know, I forget, like Jack mentions it, there's like a few hundred states of samadhi that you can experience. Right. I know there's something extremely elaborate like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. That was a wonderful explanation and a timely one. I actually just did a meditation retreat where we it included the Brahma we are. So I really appreciated your answer. You're so welcome. You know, I know we had talked a little bit at the beginning of the conversation about, you know, working with plant medicine and entheogens. You know, people use different terms, have different things they like, psychedelics, entheogens, plant medicine. But you seem clearly very skillful at weaving in different practices from different traditions. And I'm curious, how have entheogens or plant medicines 
become a part of your practice? Which ones do you work with and what purposes do they serve? Yes. Well, you know, I believe that at the core, yoga is about shamanism, that we're deeply like working with the body is soma. The the Greek use the word soma, which means body, actually. So it's uh, the plant medicine are part of this world, yet they are also part of another world. I mean, it's like my whole approach with yoga, with Buddhism, is to take it out of the clutches of patriarchy, quite frankly, and bring it back to a balance. And that includes the indigenous wisdom that's already there. There's a lot of indigenous wisdom if we were just willing to listen to, to that. Like, you know, whether it comes out in the Hopi elders or it comes out in the 13 grandmothers that's starting to speak out that kind of became famous. The plants will communicate that ancient wisdom that this planet is beautiful, that there we are a part of uh, the same thing. You know, like I forget the quote from Martin Luther King, like the mutual garment of destiny. Sure, yes, like, we're interwoven in, in a basically interwoven in a, a garment of destiny. Basically, yes. that we're all connected. Right. And all people had access to that, like who are awake. You know, they, they realize that actually what happens to the planet, what happens to, to the other beings. I, one of my favorite teacher, uh, teachings of Richard uh, it was he came up with this years ago. He was like, well, he was like, you know, he, he reads Sanskrit. So he went to a, a very old, obscure, I, I really seriously don't even remember exactly what scripture it was. But he was like, I, he found the true meaning of Mulabandha. And the true meaning of Mulabandha, those of, you, of the listeners who know Mulabandha, it's usually identified as a lift of the pelvic floor. Sometimes it's even like, you know, misunderstood as like Ashvini Mudra, which means like tightening your anus, which is really a misunderstanding. But in any case, the true meaning of Mulabandha actually means that no being, I repeat, no being, not just human being, but any being, no being can reside outside of your heart. Only when all beings are pl placed, positioned inside of one's heart, can mulabandha truly occur. And then what also occurs simultaneously is what's called chittabandha. And when chittabandha, when the mind basically suspends in awe of like having all beings placed in one's heart, then it's said that this great goddess of great beauty appears um, just a wonderful teaching. And I always think about that. So the true meaning is not like you're huffing and puffing and trying to, you know, lift up your anus or whatever. But it's like when you actually expand your heart so much that all beings can be placed in it is actually the true meaning. So the plant communicate exactly that. They know about this mutual garment of destiny and the indigenous people know about it. So we need to use yoga and dharma to come back to that not to get further away it's not like an elitist you know moving it concerns me gravely that a lot of people wounded people come to spiritual practice and use it to spiritually bypass unfortunately that is very common it's like they we so, we sort of think that we can escape you know the worldly 
pain that many of us have so many tra- have so much trauma so we think we can actually escape by going into a higher plane so to speak and it doesn't ultimately work because we have to come right back down here jack explains that really beautifully too that his journey was from the upper chakras to go down he didn't go like he went up first and then he had to come back down chakra by chakra till he came back to the earth so we need to include the earth in our spiritual practice we need to realize that it is the spiritual practice and i think the plant medicine communicates that you know like nothing else and what is important to know is that i just could not put more emphasis that you have to be really careful if you start working with plant medicine like there's a lot of spiritual tourism now going to south america or and it's the latest hype and there's going to be a lot of abuse just like there's a lot of abuse with mindfulness and you know it's like mindfulness is used to sell you things these days and same as yoga yoga it's yoga with goats yoga with beer yoga with i mean it's just there's no end to what they're doing with yoga now also so it's just the same kind of caution has to be used when you're actually working with plant medicine that you find somebody who is skilled in leading you on an inner journey because depending on the plant medicine it can be a rough trip you can see things about yourself that you maybe weren't willing to see or you know you may throw up and it it may like some people have rough journeys and but that's also good like if you're ready for this you can use it just like you can use a silent retreat to confront yourself but it's just important that you have a good guide and that you take the time to vet the guide and make sure that they know what they're doing and uh, that so that you can integrate the experience into your daily life i would absolutely second you know what you say in terms of caution and carefully researching things first that's always my advice to people and i couldn't agree more with you so glad you said that from what you said about Uh, sort of describing plant medicine, it sounded a little bit, and I'm inferring here, but like ayahuasca was possibly the the plant medicine that you were referring to. I'm curious if that's the case. And if so, you know, what specifically do you find is powerful about ayahuasca? Do you work with any other plant medicines as well? And how are they different? Well, yes, I have worked with pretty much all the the plant medicine that there is, and I found different value in all of them. Like, I think what's important to realize, too, for people is like, don't use these substances as a party. You know, it's not a party thing. It's not to make you feel good. It should be used as a clear way of helping you to awaken, of stretching the mind or maybe seeing other dimensions of yourself or understanding a more holistic picture of who you are and you are going to feel drawn like these like I actually believe like you know it's the same thing like I have my weak spot is my lungs I've always had weak lungs ever since I'm a child I also smoked for a period of my life I had some pneumonia so it's like my issues with my lungs I've always been a part of me. And guess what? Like I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, 
And there are, my garden has been taking over with mullen. Mullen is just growing everywhere. And guess what? Mullen is the primary ingredient for lungs. So I actually am taking uh, mullen. You know, I, I wish I could, I knew enough to, you know, to work with the mullen. I have my garden, but I'm too busy. So I'm not, but I am taking mullen. But my my point is that, you know, people often develop the exact plants in their gardens that they need to. There is a symbiotic relationship between us and the plants, not just with, of course, obviously the breathing mechanism. We we exhale and the plants breathe in what we exhale and vice versa. So they, they freshen up our, our air and they take what the poisonous and recycle it. It's really quite amazing. But they have a symbiotic relationship with us. So often the plant will come to you. So my advice would be that you don't seek out like ayahuasca just because you're curious, but almost wait until the right kind of plant medicine will find you. And if it does, you'll know, and then you'll be really excited. And you know, you'll know that this is the right setting, the right format. Uh, so just, I want to make sure that we don't go into this spiritual tourism again. So, you know, whatever plant medicine it is, whether it's ayahuasca or the San Pedro or peyote, you know, you will have to have a, a relationship with somebody who is familiar with these plants that w- will invite you to that circle. And you just basically have to trust that when you're ready, that the teacher will appear. It's basically the same thing as any other teacher. These plant teachers are teachers. And all you need to do is wait and make sure that you don't miss it. Like when I first saw that book with Jack, I knew. And I was like, okay, I'm willing to move there just because I know this is going to be the person I'm going to work with. This is the teacher I choose. The plants are the same way. They're actually going to find you and you just be ready and for the awakening that might come with it and you treat it with respect and reverence so you can actually make space for it in your life. You know, one thing that I've really picked up on from the beginning of our conversation is the way, you know, from the first question when I asked you what yoga was about, you know, something that I was reading in between the lines, you didn't say it exactly, but it sounded to me like, yoga is connection, connection to other people, connection to yourself, between the mind and body, and also with nature. And sort of we're coming back to that theme again with yoga as shamanism. And it seems so obvious, you know, that that those connections are so clear. Yet I have to say, you know, in terms of people who make the explicit link between yoga and shamanism, I don't hear a lot of teachers doing it. You know, I've seen you do it, in fact, on some of your workshops that I've noticed before. The only other person I've seen do it is Danny Paradise, who I'm actually talking to (laughs) tomorrow. So this is a timely conversation. Oh, my God. Please say hi to Danny from me. He's a very good friend of mine. I I love him. We're we're very close. So say, say hi. Oh, good. Well, I absolutely will. And perhaps, you know, he's the answer to this question, but I was curious and and maybe it's because I'm not, you know, seeing the teachers out there that are doing it, but I'm curious, you know, who shifted you, you know, was there a particular teacher or how did you come to start to make this explicit link between yoga and shamanism? That's a good question. I I wish I'd know exactly how that shift happened, but I think it was a culmination of like moving away from that patriarchal 
model of how to do yoga where you're dominating over nature. I think that's basically what's destroying our world is that attitude of dominating, whether it's women. You know, I don't know if you heard about what happened when a pack of wolves were released in Yellowstone Park, that everything got better down to the rivers. The whole ecosystem righted itself and became more healthy just because the predators, the, the wolves, were released back into the wild. So we have this irrational fear, fear of wild and try to, you know, stamp it out. We are afraid of anything that's wild, anything that's uncontrollable. And we need, I think it's the one of the reasons why the, the plant medicine has become so prominent again. It's because it's, you know, these forces that are recognizing that we're on such a self-destruction. Oh, come on, right? We're on such a self-destructing path right now. It's just, I mean, I, there's not a day that goes by where my mind doesn't get completely boggled about what we're doing to this planet. It's just un, excuse me, fucking believable. <laughs> and I feel like the only way that maybe we're going to be saved is, you know, through like discovering and the connections again. And I think the plants are, are pushing. The spirits of the plants are pushing us. So who knows? It's like anybody who is open and through yoga, I think through yoga and dharma, like I became this open vessel and to hear. You know, it's like I, Richard says that often, like yoga begins with listening. You have to start listening. And so when we start listening, like these things come to us. So I can't really point it whether, you know, I worked a lot with uh, indigenous people. I worked a lot with that connection in my life. And I lived in Brazil. I lived uh, for a while. I My husband is part native. So I have native friends and I was willing to listen. So I think that the whole thing for a while, these were all different paths, like my love of uh, plants, my love of the indigenous wisdom and yoga, they, they were all separate, separate tracks. And at some point, they just all came together. Like, it's really true. At some point, they all came together to make this one big loud channel of like this is important. And I get chills when I talk about it, because it's true. It's just like they everything that I've done, like just became this one powerful way of like raising my voice. Like I'm also a really big component of like helping women to speak their truth, because I think women in some ways, with all due respect to our male listeners, but women are more tapped into that indigenous wisdom still, you know, they don't trust it. But they do. They have also, in a way, even permission to, we have more permission to love than men. For men, it's more important to succeed. For women, it's more important to love. So, you know, it's not like that there's exception, but so we have more permission, but we don't trust it because it's, we're considered the weaker sex. So I believe that if we, we do get to speak out with more clarity and more confidence, 
that we need to shift where this boat is going because we're heading for collapse. I mean, I'm not sure that if we are not going to change our ways, if we're going to survive, quite frankly. I'm not sure that the earth, I don't think we can destroy the earth, but we're doing considerable damage to her right now. At some point, she might just get tired of us and just kind of get rid of us for a while. And then maybe there is going to be an experiment human 2.0. I don't know. But <laughs> the way we're behaving at this point, I, I, it's not looking good. You know, it's like, and we may have to be wiped out so that this whole planet can kind of recover. And, and then maybe we'll get another take of becoming the true stewards to this beauty, beautiful jewel that we we're meant to be, because that's what we're meant to be. It's like we're meant to be stewards we meant to guide and help and and treasure and revere life, not use it for our own ends and, and destroy it. Well, I'm so happy you mentioned that because that's a perfect segue. And I'm mindful of your time. So this can be the last question if that feels right to you. But, you know, I think early in the conversation, you said something about you talked about there are different kinds of activism. And for you, it's important to think about activism in a way that's skillful. And so... I want to sort of wrap up the conversation by talking about yoga, you know, off of the mat, taking our yoga out into the world, yoga as connection to others in the environment and yoga as skillful activism. And I feel it's a particularly important moment, as you said earlier, not only for activism, but really to integrate contemplative practices with activism. Because one thing that I really noticed at this particular moment as an American who lives abroad. And I say this as someone who is just as horrified, I think, as probably most people listening to this podcast. All due respect, and if you voted for you know Trump, please listen to the podcast. I like having different voices, but I think there's a lot of reactivity in this moment. And while I understand people's anger, I think that some of the ways in which people are reacting in this particular moment aren't necessarily helpful. In fact, I think they're they're very detrimental. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what your vision or your understanding of skillful activism might look like in this particular time and place. I'll let you know when I'm doing it. No, I'm just no. kidding. <laughs> I vacillate between, you know, absolute like despair and pissed offness and hope. And I can't bypass it. You know, it's like I, I do experience these like emotions and, and feelings, which is fine. You know, I'm obviously like if I, if you actually are not pissed off, in these days, then there's something wrong with you. And or if you don't despair occasionally, then something is wrong with you because things are really are quite desperate, you know, but there's a difference between having all these feelings and feeling them and acting upon them. So, you know, I will only act out my, I wrote one book, it's called The uh, Art of Awakening. It's my yoga and dharma manual. And I still have another book in me. So the, the second book I'm going to write, which I'm actually writing in my head almost daily, <laughs> is a spiritual thriller, which is going to be really fun. And I'm going to live all of the things I would never do. Like, for example, like there was a, a a festival in Yulin just recently. I like it's the reason why I dread Facebook in June, because some people 
actually film it. And I don't know why they would do that because I find that absolutely un actually unacceptable. It's like, we don't need to see a woman raped in order to believe that rape exists or that rape is bad. So in the same way, people put probably with good intentions, these videos of how they, in Yulin, during 10 days, a meat festival, a dog and cat, how they they torture dogs to death because they have some belief that the maize, that the meat will taste better when you torture the, the creature. So it's absolutely horrendous. You get like, I actually haven't seen it, but even just seeing a glimpse of it leaves me traumatized. So then I have these visions of like, I don't know if you heard about, but in, in Africa, there's this black, black mamba team. It's an all woman's team. There are badass women fully trained and they're going after poachers and they're kicking the poachers butt <laughs> i part of me wow. like really celebrates that i'm like yeah baby i want to be part of a team like that or so in my mind i'm i'm sending you know these teams to yulin to like extract a pound of flesh of these people torturing these innocent dogs and cats these kinds of things I will only do in my book, you know what I mean? But I partly, it makes us feel satisfied to like actually, you know, th think of revenge or think of like, you know, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But are we actually going to do it or are there other ways of engaging? And of course there are. And that's the whole point of a spiritual practice is that you learn a more skillful way of like, say, when you're discussing with, you know, somebody who has a different opinion that you try to find common ground and find a way, but it isn't easy. And sometimes, you know, when I see in nature, like sometimes the mama bear will simply kind of slap her cub in order to stop it doing something silly. And there is a part that of us that we absolutely need to say no, and we need to stand up. You know, I believe like we had great leaders in this century. You know, what was Martin Luther King? He was all about saying no. And it was all about saying like, this is not okay. But he did it in a really skillful way, nonviolent. And the same with Gandhi. So I think we already have implanted in us these fierce leaders that showed us the way. Like Gandhi said, he if he had to choose between cowardice and violence, he would ch choose violence. So he, it wasn't a weak position that he was in. He was fierce. But I think that, you know, if we just respond with, vengeance and violence, we're just going to turn the, you know, we're just going to turn the leaf and things are going to continue. So we do need to be smart about how we're responding. But each and every one of us has a responsibility to say no. And you can say no in so many freaking ways already. You know, you can start like you think it doesn't matter, but it does. Like if you don't buy meat from the regular supermarket, it matters to some animals that didn't, didn't get tortured to death for your plate. You can go and if you do eat meat, then go and find a, a ranch and, or like find, you know, that we're part here of beneficial farms in Santa Fe. 
Joshua, my husband, eats meat, and we get it from really responsible sources. And it's possible. And yes, we rather pay $2 more, but get like meat that was like from a cow that was treated well, that had a life. So you vote with your dollars every day. And there are so many ways that you can make a difference every day. So there's many ways of saying no. There's many ways of skillful action. You're going to just have to like dig a little bit and pay attention. And then you basically, you will be shown how to make a difference. Wonderful answer, Kachi. And that's a wonderful place to wrap up. But before we do, I want to give you a chance just to tell people about where they can find you online or social media or any upcoming workshops or retreats that you have on offer. Thank you. I think the best way is just go onto my website, which is uh, kachiananda.com. And you can also find my yoga and dharma manual, The Art of Awakening there, which is a really dense but beautiful book, like mostly synthesizing what we talked about today, how to synthesize yoga and dharma, because there's that's my method. It's like one leg is yoga, one leg is dharma, with a big focus on the Brahma Viharas, like this the, the Brahma Viharas, which are love, compassion, joy, and peace in a nutshell. So there's that's basically my main focus when I'm teaching. And yeah, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. I actually just hired a PR woman, which has been great because I suck at all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I have the, somebody who is doing this for me now, which is, feels really good. Somebody from a younger generation who kind of knows her way better around these things. So but thank you so much for having me. It was a really pleasure. You like asked very pertinent question and it was very easy to talk with you. And thank you for having me. Thank you, Kachi. I really appreciated your time and I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great day, Adrian. Okay, you too. Take care.